Welcome to Debrief. I'm Megan Murphy, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. With each episode, we'll sit down with the world's leading business leaders, entrepreneurs, and political figures. It's a peek behind the scenes of global business, culture, and politics. A firsthand conversation with the people who shape the world's economy. If you don't feel smarter afterwards, then we aren't doing our job. I recently sat down with Ginny Rometty, IBM CEO, chairman, and president, at the Cornell Tech campus on New York's Roosevelt Island as part of Bloomberg's Sooner Than You Think conference. Since taking the helm of IBM in 2012, the company has undergone another wholesale reinvention, and it's faced a series of challenges, from how it prepares its workforce for the jobs of tomorrow to carving out its own future on artificial intelligence. Ginny comes from a tougher background than many know, and her vision for her company's future and her own personal mark on it stood out. glad they moved them closer together um, so that we Even can talk. Still. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I'm so delighted to be here at Sooner Than You Think for this great flagship event that we're having at the new campus. And I'm even more delighted to have you here to have a chat with you today about some of these issues we're discussing and that we're confronting. And I think we should just kick it off with something we're going to be talking and you guys are going to be hearing a lot about today, and that's artificial intelligence. But of course, people in this room may not know, but IBM doesn't call it AI. They call it cognitive computing, and I want you to just tell us why that is. Oh, this is, um, I've actually had to explain this to my husband as well, because he said to me, Jenny, of all words, why cognitive? And uh, because the world calls it AI. And it was really a very thoughtful decision. And and actually, it's one of the topics I think you're going to talk about today. There is so much fear-mongering around what AI is, and that there's a downside, and that does this, the overlords, does this take over jobs? And so it is not really the era that we envision, and it had a lot to do with it. So when we started over a decade ago, it was the idea to help man make better decisions, and you and I, cognitive overload, that's really what it is. And so that's what has always let us down, coming back to cognitive, and the idea that each of us are going to need help augmented intelligence. Like instead of AI, I would have preferred augmented intelligence, that you and I are going to need help on all important decisions, no matter what they are, not only because the amount of data, um, it's the complexity of what is out there. And it doesn't matter what profession you're in. And therefore, it was this idea that you could help any decision be better. And I am always reminded of um, an interesting statistic that studies have been done, and maybe you, I'll see if those of those in the room from Cornell would agree or not, that when asked, what percentage of your decisions are right? What percentage would you guess? 100%. 100%, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, um, it's studies sort of on average, and a third are really great decisions, a third are not optimal, and a third are just wrong. And so when you think about that and how much we've estimated it's a market of $2 trillion to make better decisions uh, because of that. And that's what led us all to really calling it cognitive and getting through to people that look, we really think this is about man and machine, not man versus machine. This is an era, a really an era that will play out for decades in front of us. We're going to talk more about this sort of dystopian vision and, and, and jobs and, and the contrary argument yeah. to that going forward. But a lot of people know IBM and cognitive AI through Watson. Uh-huh. And a lot of people still know Watson from the Jeopardy episode in 2011. Amazing, huh? Which really sent it forward. 
Can you talk to us about Watson and make it more real world for these people in this room to understand what it's done, clients, what they're using it for critical business decisions now? Yeah, this is where um, we've come such a long distance from that time period. Uh, that was a demonstration, and it was a question and answer in a big open forum. What jeopardy if you've seen it? But since that time, uh, my simple definition, we viewed a whole era where you would not program machines. They would look at data, understand, reason over it, and then continue to learn. Understand, reason, learn, not program, if I say it simply. Everything you know to date is programmable. Everything, an entire era for decades has been programmable. This would be the beginning of a new era where you didn't program. So that, to us, is a very big difference then between what you and I might experience in, I call consumer AI, general purpose versus business. And what we set out to do was build an AI platform for business. So I think it comes alive with better examples. And when I say for business, there would be two big differences to consumer. One is that, as an example, if you're on your phone and you ask, give me the best song in 1950. Well, some of you might ask for 2012, I don't know, but you know, 1950. Um, you don't think about, well, who voted on that? Why did they pick that song? You don't think about it. If you say, is this the right diagnosis of this type of cancer? You want to know who trained it, what data, what was the evidence behind it? And so the idea that for business, AI would be vertical, meaning you would train it to know medicine, you would train it to know underwriting of insurance, you would train it to know financial crimes, train it to know um, oncology, train it to know weather, and I'll come back to some of these. That would be one big, big difference. And when you train for a vertical, it isn't as if there's billions of data points. You know, we've been training on regulatory, with the regulatory world, things like those of you in banking, GDPR in Europe. Okay, it's a regulation. There's not billions of data points on this. You need to train and interpret something with small amounts of data. So vertical knowledge. And then the second thing we realized, and I think this is, if I'm a company, like I am, my own, this is the most important difference. If I asked you, and I think Megan knows the answer to this, guess what percentage of the world's data is searchable? I do what would be your guess? What would anyone's here's guess? Somebody be? shout it out. Four. Four? Well, someone said 60, 10. The, the answer's 20. The other 80% lives with all of us that have established businesses. And, and my view is that data has got a lot of gold in it. I don't say you get it today. You absolutely don't. And it leads me to the second big difference in AI for a business is that if that's my data and it's my IP and my competitive advantage, I don't want to be training because remember, it's training. It, I'm training algorithms. I want to be sure those algorithms become mine. So in other words, I want a platform that it's my AI, if I can say it that way, even if it operates in a cloud. So those are the two super big differences between what I call consumer or general purpose and business. It knows a domain and a profession, and you can protect your insight, not just your data, your insight. So real life, I was telling Megan, um, there are so many examples. We're on a path to hit about a billion people will have had a decision impacted by Watson in some way. So financial services. Uh, and it's interesting to me to watch. Some of the biggest banks in Europe have adapted far more quickly to this. Customer call centers. 
uh, Credit Mutuelle. You take 350,000 emails in a day. You don't just sort them by uh, keyword for urgency and how to solve them. These are actually sorted by importance, sentiment of a client, their customer sat. That's what they use Watson for. And then what's the possible answer? Um, I was saying to Megan that financial crimes, you think people spend all their time decisioning. Well, if I'm doing a dossier on any money laundering, it could take me five hours to pull the data together. Now I get the data and I spend 15 minutes gathering and I do it. Um, on the weekend, I was with Woodside, a big oil and gas company. Everybody has this problem, an aged workforce. Uh, when you, many industries, I mean, I can name many in the room, uh, have this. And so how do you gather that knowledge? They use Watson to do things like uh, safety, making decisions on where to drill, all of that. And I was, I was just uh, actually chatting with someone about the weekend and the hurricanes. Now, some of you may or may not know this, um, we also own the Weather Channel. Not the TV, all the digital, any of you on your phones, that's IBM actually you're hitting when you do your weather. And we've now introduced Watson into that. So over this weekend, um, three billion dots of weather info, a new weather forecast every 15 minutes recalculated across all three billion points of the earth. But on the weekend with, uh, with both Irma and with uh, uh, Hurricane Harvey, the most recent one, we helped a million conversations. It was interactive conversation, natural language, on how to prepare for the hurricane. And then it was a half a trillion interactions with Watson to help 140 airlines reroute. So these to me are things that you learn for business that are very different than when I think I hear people traditionally talk about AI. So Jenny, you touched on some of actually the criticism of Watson that's been out there, that it's still too dependent on human interface, that if we talk about in the health sector or we talk about financial services, mapping financial crime, mapping risk factors, underwriting risk, weather, that it can't learn fast enough and it hasn't been transformational enough to live up to some of the dependency both of IBM and how it's being marketed. How do you respond to those critics? Well, I, I, if they're look, you know, IBM is an $80 billion company. And so when people say, my goodness, why hasn't this thing grown IBM by two? I think that's a very unreal, unrealistic you know, expectation. And it's an era. And as I said, you teach these systems. So those of you that work with them, you, they have to learn and teach. And so I actually, Watson is exactly where we thought it would be. Watson is exactly where we thought it would be in a, in a great, Example, and I think when you're a pioneer, people do shoot. Um, not deadly, but they shoot. And uh, in healthcare, as an example, I remember when we did our very first oncology uh, teaching Watson, the very first was lung, breast, uh, colon cancer. And I remember the very first cancer, it took the doctors a year. Now, I have to, this is a really another key point about professional AI. Doctors don't want a black and white answer, nor does any profession. If you're a professional, my guess is when you interact with AI, you don't want it to say, here's an answer. What a doctor wants is, okay, give me the possible answers. Tell me why you believe it. Um, can I see the research, the evidence, the percent confidence? What more would you like to know? That's really what we're doing. And the first cancer took almost a year. We're down to less than 30 days now. And by the end of this year, Watson will have been trained on 
what causes 80% of the world's cancers. And so I find that kind of criticism completely out of line for what it is that we're working on together with doctors. And those of you, I mean, I, I want to just tell a quick story on this. You know, we're really fortunate in this country, this city. If you got cancer, you will go to a cancer center. And in America, only 15% of Americans will go to a cancer center. The other 85 will be treated at their community hospital. Then go to China and India. India's got one oncologist for 1,600 patients. I mean, your chances of world-class care are literally zero. And so this idea of what um, Morrill Sloan Kettering here, right in the city, was one of the first that taught Watson, those are gold standards. And it, it, it illustrates beautifully, I think, one of the principles of AI in the future. You must know who taught it and what data, and you must be transparent about it, because that matters in these decisions. And so my, my quick point on this is that, to me, it isn't about just the numbers of patients, right? Um, for just oncology, it's now in 50 hospitals, 16,000 patients. That's a 4x the number since last year. If anyone in here is in medicine knows anything about decision support for medicine, that is a very fast rate. But here, I've witnessed and met these patients, and here's what I see what happens. I remember when my mother got cancer. And my first reaction is, how do I know that this is the treatment? How do I know that this is the best thing? And that's me. And I'm on the board of Memorial Sloan Kettering. And so what I, I just, we, um, a gentleman named TJ in Florida, a 70-year-old driver, a truck driver, going to get a new job, had a reoccurrence of cancer. He was absolutely devastated. In a developed country, what I saw Watson do for him when the doctors showed him, here are people like you, here is the kind of things and the treatments they get, the difference in mindset is night and day to confirm, in this case, confirm. On the other hand, in my trip to India, I met a woman named Bharati. Her doctor had never seen this cancer. Without Watson, he would never have had the idea of what the treatments are. So I think you have very different kinds of um, situations that'll be in this world. But this is, if I can, I can just go full circle, not give you a long, 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 long answer, but this is why I am so positive about this world will have more really tough problems solved with AI than the issues. And there will be issues, and they are really serious. We'll come back and talk about skills, education. But the unsolvable will get a dent made in them because of it. Let's just talk about it now. Um, there are those out there who have, as you referenced, a much more dystopian vision of AI. Yeah. Now, when you talk about IBM, when you go out to talk to anyone about IBM, it's constantly a story of reinvention. You talk all the time about reinventing. Yeah. Because people have to remember that it's reinventing internally the company as well to make sure they have the skills and the jobs for the IBM of the future, not the IBM of the past. But when you look at AI, do you feel like we're going to get to a point where it will displace more jobs that it creates, and we're not doing enough to create the skills, the coding, the programming, the STEM education to really push forward with the jobs in the future, both in IBM and externally. This is why we're at Cornell Tech. Do you believe that's the core, that AI is going to be the course of this? I think that AI will displace so many more jobs in so many sectors, like financial services, like legal, and that we will see a mass migration into the service sector, and I'm not sure we're ready for that. Okay, so what I do believe is that when it comes to complete job replacement, it will be a very small percentage. When it comes to changing a job and what you do, it'll be 100%. So 
that therein, if I just park that thought, that says, whoa, different skills. Everybody's going to have to have a different skill because it's going to be a silver thread in all our jobs. But I want to come back to something I think is far more important, and it's very related to here. And if Mike Bloomberg was here, I'd give Mike a lot of credit for something we did, he and I, we did together. Um, this issue of skills is front and center to this country and many countries in the world right now without AI. We already have a world that is bifurcating between haves and have-nots, and a lot of that is based on education and skills. This country has five to six million jobs open. That's about skills. This is not being caused by that. And so I think one of the most important things, and I know it's Cornell here, but one of the most important things we can do is be clear, not only in this country, around the world, fundamentally we have got to revamp education for this era of man and machine. And that means you cannot insist that every person to be productive in society needs to be a university or a PhD graduate. You cannot. It, it's not true, by the way. We've proven that. But you started a six-year high school program. That, with Mike, by the way. That's why if Mike? Mike was here, I would, I would really give him credit. But there is so little, as you know, innovation in the education sector. Why is that? Apprenticeships, six years. This is a program where they take people through four years of high school, two years of a college equivalent, and then hopefully give them preference into getting into the workforce, again, preferred well, with IBM. I, I believe this would be one of the things I've worked with the administration the most on, and not just in this country, in many countries in the world. In the United States, in 2015, half of our young people did not have an associate's degree or a college degree. So the problem is here today, and let alone people that need to be retrained. So I think this is, I'm far more optimistic on this, that public-private partnerships can solve this dilemma. And I witnessed it. It's not just about us doing a few schools. They're called Pathway to Technology. There'll be a hundred of them. It becomes viral, driven by governors and states. It does not be about, I always remember when President Obama came to the first one, he goes, hey, where's the lab? Where's all the computers? We're like, uh, that's not what we teach these kids. We're teaching them a skill about math problem solving that's going to transcend any technology that they deal with. And by the way, we kind of coined them new collar jobs. So it, no bad stereotype, not a blue collar, not a white collar. You'd be a new collar. And we're finding in the schools, 300 other companies are helping. Very simple formula. Curriculum, math, science. Second thing, give the kids a mentor. And then you give them a chance at a job. Just a chance. We're up to, we'll be up to 50,000 kids and 300 other companies have all volunteered. Any of you would volunteer to take a kid and do this. Anyone. I mean, that's the great thing about this country. We don't look to someone else to solve this problem. So the idea of scaling this type of new collar ed, apprenticeships, and then credentialing, and we've got some great, the legislation's on the table in the U.S. for some of this. I'm very optimistic about that we're going to make a dent in it. But to me, that is the fundamental problem. Now, AI. Can I quick on? Yes, okay. please. I do believe if, if your company's sitting here, and, and, and Paul will be up next, and those of us that make things that make that era real, when I went to Davos in January, I, we published something called Guidelines for Transparency in the Cognitive Era. And I think all of us have a responsibility. Like, I think it's our responsibility, if we build this stuff, to guide it safely into the world. And one is, be clear on the purpose, work with man. We aren't out here to destroy man. The second is, be transparent, who trained it, who, who were the experts, where did the data come from, and if the consumer uses it, you tell them he's using it. 
And as well, a company who owns the intellectual property. And the third thing is be committed to skills. So purpose, transparency, and skills, I actually think it's incumbent on us. So sorry, a bit of a, I, I'm so passionate about that the root issue of inequality is this issue of skills and education. And while this could exacerbate it, we have it within our hands to help really make a difference. I told Jenny before she came out here, having watched so many of her interviews, that she's so passionate and committed in her answers. And it's great well, to see live We now. see the real answers. I mean, we see these kids. I mean, I got a whole bunch of them over in Silicon Alley, where we have our Watson headquarters. I've got a two and a half year old. She's already on a coding raspberry. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Look, I want to I talk about a future that feels a little bit more current. Um, you were part of, the, of President Trump's Business Advisory Council, which disbanded um, in the wake of Charlottesville. You said at that time in a letter in a, that became public that you released that it was no longer fit for the purpose with, for which it was created. What did you mean by that? A um, little bit of background, because that wasn't my first letter to my workforce, which I know in this day and age, everything that obviously you communicate with your team many times can become public. Um, if I think of one word, and maybe a little this is being 106 years old, not me personally, um, IBM, uh, don't laugh too hard at that. I know, I <laughs> I'm a little worried about silent. it. Um, I can't tell you how important I think engagement is. So even with my own workforce, as I've described to them, I said, look, IBM CEOs have engaged with world leaders, and in the United States, since Woodrow Wilson. In June, I was with President Abe, or Prime Minister Abe in Japan, President Macron next week. They all have many of the same similar issues that we deal with, and that there are really important policies, not politics, that matter. In fact, I, I really, with the team, have reinforced over and over, it is about policies, not politics. And some of the key, as you would guess, how passionate I am about skills and education, about tax to be competitive, and trade for a digital era would be the top policy, and of course, diversity and inclusion. And so it is our job to have an, I mean, we're, we are blessed to be able to have an influence, and it's our job to do that. So um, this strategy and policy forum is what I was a part of and asked to be a part of. It wasn't a council. It was asked to give input. And I think, actually, we've made, I felt we've made a very, very positive impact on this issue about the education and things that can be done. Uh, I expect the administration to continue to do more things aligned with that. Uh, we had some very good input on many other issues. Uh, but what I meant by that then was that is what that was a purpose for. If people began to believe that by becoming and being in any of these vehicles, it meant you condoned in any way Charlottesville? No, we did not. There was nothing to condone about all the activities around Charlottesville. So that's what I meant by that. that but we would continue to engage because it is, is incumbent upon us. It transcends any kind of electoral cycle everywhere in the world. So that's, and I have found, as many of you would, I have 380,000 employees. So it helps to always explain why we believe these things. I mean, we're the only tech, no political contributions, no PAC, never have, never will. Only one that can say that. And so it has always been about policies. I want to just drill down into that a little bit more, but I want to say something for people in this room. I think a lot of people look at people like Jenny and think she just sprang fully formed as the kind of leader that she is. She comes from a background that's a bit different than people, I think some people know. Uh, your father left home when you were young, leaving your mother. You have three siblings. You've talked about food stamps, entitlement programs, getting back on your feet, and those lessons that your mother taught you. When you look at the country and some of the anger and frankly disaffection 
that people feel for the establishment. Are you surprised? Are we headed in the right direction? Are we as optimistic as we should be? I would say three things about that. For this country itself, I would never count America out. Never. And I think you lead, look, no further than this weekend. Um, this country, when things don't go right, people help each other. This country doesn't look for... I, I didn't hear a single person this weekend say, well, what did my government do this weekend for me? I mean, they were... Everyone, we, we pledged, we've pledged $4 million of work we're doing, not even counting all of the volunteer work people are doing. Um, we, I looked out, my friends looked, everyone looked out for each other. We had people buying boats, going in, helping people, do, you name it, what they could do. This country is full of that. It is a country that when there is a problem, people look to each other before they look somewhere else. And so I think I'm very, that's just the culture of America. And so my first point is never count America out. I think this is a resilient, all of us, it's a resilient culture that is there. And I do believe, though, you have to pay attention to this point that people have to believe they have a better future. And this will come back around to my point about skills and jobs. That is what people ground themselves in and having a better future. And which is why, again, you know, we pledged to hire 26,000 people or 25,000 over the next four years. And particularly, I say not that, no offense, I hire plenty in this part of the world in the West Coast, but in the middle of America, um, in the centers where, whether it's Iowa, whether, where people are not necessarily always putting high-tech jobs, and that to me is the important things to go do. And great skills, we'll do it. So I'm very, I, like others, am very bullish on this country. You talked about engagement. Um, one of the things that IBM has recently been engaged on, which again might not, people might not realize, is the transgender bathroom bill. You were out in front you know, on Charlottesville and communicating with your employees. How are those decisions made about what to engage on and what issues of policy issues, things that delve into political issues, and how personally involved are you in those decisions and communicating that out to your staff? Yeah, no, I am personally involved because when you're Look, our history of diversity goes back, it was 1943, IBM had its first woman vice president. So What year was that? 1943. Wow. So I have been surrounded by a culture of diversity and inclusion for my whole professional life there. Um, and so this is a matter of where that intersection is on what you need to be a thriving business, be competitive, intersects with your values. And now you can't speak out on everything. That is not a way. And by the way, I don't think speaking is the most important part. It is doing. I, this is a really, to me, key point. We spoke out why in North Carolina and both in Texas, we had large parts of our population, which we have embraced very, very strongly, our LGBT population, that were afraid about either place. And so we actually, in Texas, did 150 meetings with House representative, with members. It's about what you do to, to communicate to people why these things are important. It's not about a tweet. That, to me, is not how change happens. Um, it is about getting in there, rolling your sleeves up, communicating why it's an issue, uh, grassroots efforts, and that's what it is we've done on the select issues that we think really do drive home what our values are. And so that is one that's just reinforced. We can't have a workforce afraid of coming to work, and therefore that was why, in general, on that one that we were really um, you know, fo focused on it. Keeping on the topic of diversity, uh, one thing in watching your interviews through the years that you've talked some about is your journey as a female leader and being a role model. And you know, I think there's a lot of women who have sympathy with not wanting to be known always as the female CEO, as, 
as that, but that having become more important to you uh, during your career. Can you touch a little bit on that? Yeah, and I would, you know, Megan's right. I, I occasionally will speak of this because early in my career, I would have always said, please don't ever reference me being a woman. This is not about being a woman. I am, you know, I am on my own merits here for many, many years. Until at some point I realized, wait a second, people do need role models. And whether I like that or not, you do have to take that on board. And what I learned from my mom, you referenced this, and about um, my upbringing, I watched my mom, yes, she struggled, and I'm a proponent for, for programs in the world that are there for a safety net for people, when we had no money and she had to go on food stamps. And, but I also watched the pain in her face. She could not wait to get off of those, right, and show us, go back to school, get her degree, get a job, that we would be okay. And what she taught us, which has transcended to me as a woman leader, as well as just a leader, is don't ever let someone else define who you are. Only you define who you are. The world would not define her as a, you know, a woman whose husband left her, unsuccessful, never educated. You know, they were, she wasn't going to let the world do that. And we all, she never said these words, by the way. It was only by watching that we each internalized that and that, no, and I think it's true for a company and a country, and this idea that you define who you are. And so maybe we've come full circle you know, to me on IBM, and that I say to people, look, we're the only 106-year-old tech out there. So this isn't one generation, two generations, three generations, four, five. And we're the team here reinventing it for another generation. The part that's never changed about IBM, it's innovate technology and apply it to business and society. So that's our core, doesn't, but those technologies change. And this time it's a new platform. We're banking it on data, on AI, the cloud, and then it'll be blockchain. Today a big paper we had out on quantum. They'll form the new platform of the future and I am betting that the incumbent companies are gonna come roaring back because they realize they have advantages. It's in that data, it's in that know-how. They're gonna marry it with data out in the world and that data will be the basis of competitive advantage. And the new IBM, not only is that technology platform, it helps you do that. And so that's us defining who IBM is of the next generation. And that to me, in that way, it's funny. That comes full circle. Comes full circle. Okay, we're gonna end. We've got a minute left, but Ginny is not escaping with some final whip round questions. Mm. She's from Chicago, I'm from Chicago. I can't believe I even wrote this down. Cubs or White Sox? Mm. Cubs. <laughs> Of course, not even needed to be asked. It's kind of a sad story, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not anymore. Not anymore. Um, Jenny's also a big golfer. Not good. Okay, wait. Oh. She's a member of Augusta National. I know we're very jealous. Lowest Augusta score or aspirational Augusta score? Oh, aspirational. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, goodness gracious. My, my, forget about any course in the world. My aspiration is when I break 100. I mean, <laughs> those of you who are golfers, you need a lot. I love it, but you need a lot of time to be good at this, right? And my, my shortcut to try to improve my golf game was I took up boxing and, um, because of hand-eye coordination, you know? But I'm not, you know, that's not helping. Breaking 100? Of, of, of hits, not my <laughs> golf court. Um, guilty pleasure in the sense of what you do when you're not doing this. What would people find you doing? Oh... Maybe it's, it's a quiet moment with my husband. Watching anything? Not really. No so offense. Not, not, like, not like Bloomberg TV or something. <laughs> no. 
Okay, final one. I'm shocked that you're not. Um, final one. You talked a lot about this, but what do you want your legacy? You're not going anywhere. We know that. But what do you want your legacy to be at IBM? You know, I am just a steward of this great company for my period of time. And the, the, leg, the team and myself that are there today is just to leave IBM reinvented for this next era. And so it will be on another 100 years. And not only it will live on 100 years, it'll impact society, there will be jobs, it will be a better future, and it will all be about reshaping, reshaping IBM for this next era. And in our luckiest moments, <laughs> where we started healthcare, we'll make a piece. Thank you so much for being and sharing this and being with us on stage at Cornell Tech. It has been fantastic. Thank you all for being here. Good. Thank you for listening to Debrief. I'm Megan Murphy. You can find me on Twitter at Megan Murp. Business Week is on Twitter at at BW. And Debrief is available on iTunes, the brand new Bloomberg app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time. Thank you.